You are listening to the bonus 13 episode of the Fancy Free Podcast, where my guests and I tell our most embarrassing funny stories so that we all feel less alone in our imperfections and forge connection through vulnerability and humor. You guys, Michael Larson is back. She is the guest from our last episode, episode 81. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it. You don't need to listen to it before you listen to this one, but you can't miss it. In this episode, Micah shares a few more of her funny, embarrassing stories, but the central piece of this episode is her story about being an egg donor and then her pregnancy and delivery story with her own child. Micah is an amazing combination of sensitive and transparent and humorous and clever and so honest. I didn't want you to miss out on the rest of our awesome conversation. I just love her and I know you'll eat it up. We're going to pop right back into Micah's story about why she and her husband should never have been a thing. It started out being a first date story, but it goes into much more depth. And then make sure you come back on January 4th for our first episode of season four, which will be our first date compilation episode, which is also a ton of fun. You will be revisited by previous guests and you'll also get a sneak peek to some future season four guests. The reason I said he was a saint, though, is because our relationship should not have worked out at all. I was in Texas in graduate school. Eric and I were friends. We met through my research partner. He and Eric had been friends since they were kids. Eric was like a feral homeschool child in Texas. Don't know how he grew up to be so successful. Honestly, he like was four years old with a gun, like running around and shooting birds and eating them over oh a fire gosh. he built himself. <laughs> what? Yes, actually a true story. So his best friend was my research partner, introduced me to Eric, and I was like, oh, damn, this tattooed motorcycle riding medical student, like, I'm into that. But we were just friends in the beginning. So during that time, I was studying communication and was reading research about involuntarily childless couples. And I had just never thought about that before, like women who were infertile and what that does to a marriage and relationship. And it was like very abstract for me because I was single and didn't think I was going to have kids ever. So, but that inspired me to donate my eggs. I was doing the crossword puzzle in the university paper shortly after that and saw an ad for an egg donor agency. They definitely put ads around college campuses because they're like, hey, we'll pay you Mm -hmm. for your eggs. $2,000. Yes. You're a family talk, so you know about that. Well, I had a patient when I was in residency that was an egg donor, and that was really my first experience with it. So I had to sit her down and pick her brain. I was fascinated by it. I think it's amazing that you did that. Completely, incredibly amazing. Well, thank you. I don't know. It's such a hidden industry because there's this shame associated with first infertility. And like I said earlier... Mm -hmm. Our default setting is, oh, my body can do whatever, like have a baby, however. Yep. And it's shocking when it doesn't work out like that. That's why there are amazing fertility physicians and medicine is truly incredible how it can intervene. But we can't just create babies from scratch. So I thought, like I said, I'm a fly by the seat of my pants, really decisive (laughs) in the moment person. And I was like, well, this is my calling. And there have been several times in my life where I felt like that one of them was when I went to Africa to become a teacher. The second 
time was when I decided, well, I'm just going to donate my eggs. I'm going to try. I'm going to give it a shot. No pun intended with the shot. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, you know, it's a pretty medically intensive process, but nobody I had ever met had talked about like what it's like beforehand. There's obviously a super strict process of being accepted. But beforehand, like when you sign up with an agency and you create a profile, they're like, you're probably never going to be chosen out of the database. They preface it all by saying, no one will probably ever choose you. So just know that going into it. And if they do it on average, wait time to be chosen from a database is like two years. So I was like, okay, well, this is not an immediate gratification thing. Maybe someday I'll get a call. So I kind of put it in the back of my mind. Two weeks later, they called me and said, intended parents have chosen you out of the database and they want you to go forward in the process of getting screened. So yeah, then you enter the process of very stringent screening and they start with a psych profile. And so you have to be cleared by a special psychiatrist. And it was near Dallas at the time. When IVF first started, she was one of the original professionals who worked with IVF families to clear donors. And so she saw the first ever cases and the children who were first born from IVF. I've guessed they're in their 30s now. And so she's seen like the first life cycle. And so she has such a unique perspective. And she told me those children are the most loved children ever because their parents went to the ends of the earth to have them, Mm -hmm. which was really cool. So I obviously passed that part. Then you go on to the physical part. So they're like, okay, are all the mechanics working? And I was in my early 20s and I was like, well, obviously (laughs) all my equipment's working. I was under the assumption that everything was cool. I went in there for my first ultrasound and they're like, oh, Record scratch. We don't see any eggs in here, like ah, at all. What? Totally barren. So they're like, sometimes this happens if you've been on birth control for a long time. Like things kind of go dormant. So you're gonna like let your body reset and then come back. But that was a totally. I never thought concretely about having children, like yeah, or anything. Like, wait, 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 what? Not only can I maybe not help this couple have the child that they've been seeking for so long, but I might not ever be able to have my own. Oh my gosh. Yes. And so that was the first time I ever really thought about, oh my God, fertility. That's a real thing. What if I actually want that? So I was kind of in peril and I was just in a very lonely place in my life. I was living in Texas by myself and I was selling my clothes to pay my bills and I was working three jobs and getting a master's degree. So I had my friends and Eric was one of those friends. I didn't even really know him that well yet, but he was in medical school and I texted him one night and I was like, I know we don't know each other that well, but I'm gonna go do the second ultrasound to see if like I can have kids and you're in medical school. So would you just go with me? Cause we'd had beers before, <laughs> but totally just off the cuff thing. And he was just like, sure. And Aww. so this like 25 year old, you know, med student. So he went with me and sat in this room and I had like the paper gown on and they're like using that huge phallic shape <laughs> probe yes. ultrasound to like look at my ovaries. Transvaginal ultrasound that's yeah. Yeah, terrifying looking. <laughs> There's this big screen and so you're like looking at the black and white images on the screen and I don't know what I'm looking at. But I'm just hoping I see something that looks like an egg. I don't know what egg <laughs> looks like against my body. So anyway, Erica was holding my hand and I was not really brave enough to look at the screen. Not that I would have known what I was looking at, but I was just kind of looking at his face. And I see his face, Joanne, light up like a million watts because he knew how to read an ultrasound. And he saw like, he just looked down at me and he didn't have to say anything. I didn't even have to look at the doctor. But I was like, oh my God, God, he sees something on there. What a moment. Oh. Yeah. And then I could not in a million years have known from then. Fast forward six years later, we would be sitting in the exact same position and I would be Mm. looking at his face, finding out that we were pregnant. That gave me full body chills. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
Like, and I'm not like a romantic or anything, but looking back, it's just such an amazing moment. We miscarried. It was just such a really difficult up and down road to having our own children. So it was a really crazy start. So that really bonded us. From then, he actually moved to Wyoming shortly after. But in the interim, he was like, yo, you want to get on my motorcycle and go get tacos? And I was like, absolutely, I do. (laughs) So we started dating then. And I went through the process of donating my eggs. Like you said, it's like tons of shots and pouring hormones into your body. And I found out during that process that intended mom and intended dad this was like their Hail Mary and they'd had six miscarriages and they were just like, this is our last shot. And they chose me out of the database because I looked a lot like the mom and they were favorites of the people at the fertility clinic because they'd been there a long time. So I was just totally humbled by the fact that they had chosen me and I wanted it to work so badly. And you don't know how things are going to work because as the donor, you just give yourself all these shots and you start to look pregnant and you have these crazy hormones and you're ovaries go from the size of little golf balls to like grapefruits and you create all these eggs and then you go into surgery and they remove them and on average they take 10 to 13 eggs and I actually was a super donor and I donated 46. Wow. Yeah, I was super sensitive to the drugs that they gave me. You're like when I do things, I do them big. Sister. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> bitch, that's me. Wow. Um my ovaries were like <laughs> overtime working. So it, they do some things really well, not most things. <laughs> And the numbers are super crazy with IVF because you usually only get from a crop of 10 to 13 eggs, maybe one or two is good. I gave them good numbers basically. And so then I just kind of sat on my ass and like waited for nine months, you know, waiting for news. Did it work? Did it not work? Hmm. And then I got a call February 10th, 2015. My son was born and he lives in Texas. So he's five years old. Oh my gosh. Wow. And during that time, Eric, he's not an emotional guy, but like I started to see this very tender side of him because he was living in Wyoming, but he was my only support during this because I was teaching at a really conservative institution that frowned upon IVF. And Mm -hmm. so we got really tight during that. And it was actually an amazing thing. Like everyone should have to go through IVF uh, in the beginning of a dating relationship, kind of figure out (laughs) if you're meant to be. That's a relationship accelerator right there. (laughs) Really, it truly is. And I had complications from it too. So it was really up and down. So anyway, February 10th was my donor son's birthday. And then fast forward to us living in Montana, we were married. And February 10th, four years later, I had a miscarriage. (gasps) Then February 10th, 2019, we induced labor to have our son, Wilder. Wow. And so I've just had this really crazy experience. I'm not superstitious person, but these coincidences just have brought me on this really interesting journey. Wow, this went a lot more sentimental place. The embarrassing story and the core of all this is that this really hot motorcycle riding tattooed doctor to be could have been dating anyone, Joanne, but he (laughs) had his happy ass sat in a fertility clinic on his first (laughs) date with me. With my ovaries were so big, they were pressing my bladder, and I peed all over this man in the middle of the story. <laughs> like he was cleaning it up with paper towels and like telling the nurse, oh, oh, it's fine. oh my gosh. <laughs> disaster. I'm just a walking disaster. He knew though, like he knew early on what he was getting into. Oh my gosh. Well, he's perfect for that. He's got the training. <laughs> yeah, nothing rattles that man, unless I'm taking Benadryl. 
when I shouldn't be. <laughs> There's so, so many amazing things in that story. I have more questions about being an egg donor. First of all, please tell me that they prepare the young women for the psychological implications of having children out there that they don't know. Hell no. Oh, that's terrible. I'm actually really glad that they at least let you know that an egg was viable, became fertilized, and produced a son. They didn't willingly. I hounded them. <gasps> really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I find a way my right to know the child, right? And mm-hmm. vice versa. Like it's a mutual decision on the part of parents and the donors. And I'm glad that I did kind of. He can't come looking for me when he's 18. But no. And I had horrible postpartum depression because mm. you're eggs are ripped out of your body and there's this like horrible cliff hanger hormonally. Mm-hmm. And I had the hyper ovarian stimulation syndrome, which means my body went into overdrive and I had to have an emergency procedure where they like drained my ovaries oh and I had torsion. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, bilaterally, which is like a crazy what? thing. So in the event of trying to help someone else have a baby, I almost became infertile myself. Wow. And I didn't even really care about pregnancy or anything beforehand, but I learned so much about that. But no, they do not educate women about the psychological part of that. It's really strange. I was in mourning for a long time about Mm. having the son who lives far away, but definitely having my own son healed that. It did. Oh, good. Yeah. Do you ever visit Texas and look around (laughs) thinking, will I recognize him? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Grocery store aisles. I'm like, does that child have my face? Hmm. The only contact I ever had with the parents, they sent me a letter through my lawyer and Eric had to read it to me because I was like so emotional. That was, I think it was the night before I had the retrieval surgery. And during that whole time, I was just really tough. So I had like painted on the canvas of my bed, look for silver linings. And they wrote me this letter saying, we just want to tell you what your, our baby's life will be like. And dad will play the guitar and mom grows an organic garden and we're going to love this child more than anything because we dedicated our whole life to having this child. And at the very end, they said, thank you for being our silver lining. <gasps> Eric what? lost it. And that's the first time I ever saw him cry. <sighs> so that gave me some relief in that. I know my son has an amazing life and maybe even has siblings. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So were there leftover eggs and what did they do with those? So legally, they can forward them to another couple or they can donate them to science for research. Okay. Or they could save them for that couple to have another child. Yes. I don't know how many eggs are good out of those. They don't give you the statistics. I'd be like, I have to know. I didn't even think about that. Oh, I'm sorry. And there's so many things like in hindsight, I wish that I had known. I had asked mm-hmm. or like reserved my right to know, but I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They can have them. Like whatever. Yeah. Wow. Learning wow. from my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that it was a mistake, but it was something that was going to hurt you in the future because it's really something that you want to know that you just can't now you know yeah yeah wow but bold yeah Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. putting myself out there wow what a huge gift oh my goodness so fast forward all these years later and you have wilder i love that name that's an incredible name thank you he is that oh i love it okay tell me about the cupcake incident oh yeah. Okay. When you said that, like two immediately came to mind, which is oh. really bad. <laughs> there are um, multiple cupcake incidents. Yeah. One's worse than the other. One, I just was getting off the bus in college carrying a tray of cupcakes and my skirt was 
<laughs> stuck in the waistband of my underwear. Why is it always underwear? Man, <laughs> I have a problem. I'm realizing. Thank you for helping bring this to light. Honestly, like a no pun intended. No. Maybe you'll maybe you'll start sleeping better. I don't know. You'll have all <sighs> these things like out of the cobwebs. <laughs> Get my therapist on the phone. <laughs> but the other was my husband was in residency and he had this very austere residency director and I was like doing my best to be like a really supportive spouse even though there was a holiday party that the whole residency program went to and he was working nights so he wasn't going to be there and it was a little awkward because I didn't really know anybody but I was going to like represent him Mm-hmm. And I definitely have a foot in the mouth kind of problem. So I was like, I'm going to keep that under wraps. I'm not going to say anything embarrassing. Not going to do anything embarrassing. I'll just like make a few rounds and then leave. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, you know what's going to make me really popular is making some really good cupcakes. And I've used this tactic throughout my life to little to no benefit. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to make some Guinness cupcakes with mm-hmm. Bailey's buttercream frosting. So residency programs, actually, you know this, Joanne, they have match day and it's always like right around St. Patrick's Day. So I think it was like a St. Patrick's Day party and it was on theme. However, I turned a corner at this holiday party and saw all the Mormon children eating these like really (laughs) boozy cupcakes. And so I was like going around (laughs) slapping cupcakes out of children's hands and like muttering like, these are not for you. (laughs) And the program director, obviously, like we're just standing behind me watching that was like a very shocked and amused smile on her face and it kind of like got around that I was like taking cupcakes from children and or had given them booze cupcakes and their parents were just looking at me with horrified looks on their faces (laughs) bad the image it gives me is handing out balloons and then going around just popping them all with pins (laughs) yeah I'm pretty sure some of them cried and I didn't even know what to say yeah, and you're like, I had to, I had to. Like, you would have been really mad if I didn't bat it out of their hand because it's yeah. boozy. <laughs> I don't know that I had like the wherewithal to explain to the parents what it was. I think I just left after that. So, oh my gosh, not Poor, great. And so your your husband gets home from call and you're like, I have something to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I think he laughed, but he was also like, his smile turned into a look of mild horror that. <laughs> like embarrassment and he ended up being chief resident and so I didn't ruin his career too much so (laughs) you're welcome honey I'm really good at things (laughs) the thing is you are a a funny story factory basically yeah Yeah, it's it's a gift to the world (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's not a career breaker it's a comedy maker (laughs) yeah thank you for putting it that way I mean what they say tragedy plus time equals comedy Yes, yes <laughs> exactly. I know. But it, it's so painful in the moment. It really is. I don't know. Sometimes it seems worth it. and Sometimes it doesn't. I'm thinking about you getting a home after that incident and then just thinking, what have I done? Like, how could I even how I can't fix this? What? Yeah. What do I do now? <laughs> Call all the mothers and make a big bigger <laughs> deal out of it. And then they really have something to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I take the tag. I come by it honestly is just pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> okay. That's not always the right answer, but it is my answer. I think that's probably for most of my life what my tactic would be as well. But I think I've realized that I thought I was avoiding pain by pretending it didn't happen, but really it was just simmering inside of me. And every now and then it would come up and wash over me and torture me. And so that's really hard too. I don't know. You are so wise. And that's a good point. I've learned this through therapy and also life experience. 
thank you, Jody therapist, if you're listening to this, you are my <laughs> lifesaver. Um, but like whether it's in a marriage or one of those awkward social situations or in your family, I learned to just keep those negative feelings inside and kind of grin and bear it. But oh my gosh, is it liberating and life-changing to just pull it out in the open and address it and be direct and be like, look, this thing happened or I'm feeling this way and totally sorry, my bad. Like, let me own it. And let's process it. And yeah. Then move on. And then you're kind of free from it. So yes. definitely take that tact more often. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the movie Sister of the Groom, which is streaming now on Redbox On Demand. Alicia Silverstone and Tom Everett Scott star in this hilarious romantic comedy. It is about a destination wedding weekend gone off the rails. Audrey, who's played by Silverstone, struggles with turning 40 while meeting her seemingly perfect sister-in-law. She has every intention of breaking up the happy couple and she and her loyal husband throw the weekend into a tailspin of embarrassing mishaps, making the destination wedding truly unforgettable. You can stream Sister the Groom instantly on your smart TV or your favorite device with the Redbox app today. It's rated R and it's from Paramount Pictures. So go check it out. It sounds like so much fun. It's right up our alley. Basically a movie about a woman making a fool of herself when she's trying to be nothing but fancy. So I think you're going to love it. And you guys, I am so excited to offer to you a contest where the winners will get to watch this movie for free. Simply go to FancyFreePodcast.com and enter to receive our monthly newsletter. We only send one newsletter out a month. It's short, sweet, succinct, and there's always some exclusive audio, guest updates. It's so much fun. And don't worry, if you're already in the Fancy Free Tribe and receive the newsletter, then you will be automatically entered to win. On January 4th, I will randomly choose the winners and I will email you to let you know how to view your free copy of Sister of the Groom. You were hospitalized during the end of your pregnancy. I'm not sure we talked about that before. No, I don't think we did. So I didn't have a great beginning of my pregnancy. I had a subchorionic hematoma, which is bleeding from part of where like the placenta attaches. And usually it's not very dangerous, but I had had a miscarriage previous to my pregnancy. Uh, and so it was a little bit, you know, nobody wants that to be happening. And so we kind of made a trip in to get the ultrasound and everything was okay. But I had just run a half marathon when I was in early in my pregnancy. And I was like convinced that I had caused this to happen and maybe I did. So I was like, okay, well that's going to be like the bad thing that happens in my pregnancy. And it, it totally sucked, but it was going to be all downhill from here. And then I had a lot of morning sickness and I thought, okay, maybe I'm just not like great at pregnancy. And then at the very end, um, the very end of my pregnancy. So I was like seven months pregnant. That's a long end. Yeah. I was shoveling snow in our driveway in the beginning of January. And I was like, man, I'm just so tired. You know, you kind of just think, well, everybody talks about pregnancy just like sucks and you're so tired. And so I thought, well, this is just normal. And then I started to have all these symptoms of tunnel vision and I started like leaking fluid. And so we ended up going to the hospital and we thought, well, maybe we're losing amniotic fluid. And that was really mm -hmm. scary. And Eric, you know, like we talked about, he used to work OB. So he was really familiar with these symptoms and he was really freaked out. So getting into OB triage, it ended up that that wasn't really the issue. The issue was that my blood pressure was in hypertensive crisis. 
I it was like 160 over 110. Oh my gosh. The doctor on call came in and he was like, so we're probably going to just do an emergency C-section if you don't respond to medication like very quickly. And so within a few minutes, I was admitted and I didn't leave for almost two months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was a long bed rest. So I was hooked up to monitors all the time. And it was a very interesting meditation on what it means to be a woman. And, and I lived on the L&D ward. And so I heard people in labor all the time, or I heard like oh, the NICU nurses crashing in to deliver a baby really early. And I was really lucky because Wilder was born a little less than two months early. And so that's like really far along. And a lot of babies in the NICU were born much earlier. And so he was born much bigger than they were. And we had a really disastrous, like scary labor, but in the end, he didn't have to be in the NICU for very long. And so the end of the story is really great, but it was not the path that I thought I would take to being a mom mm -hmm. at all. And I'm really glad that I did because I don't take it for granted and I can't have any more kids, but that's okay because I'm really mindful and present with this one time that I get to do this. And Wilder is so worth it. Oh, it's amazing. So you were working while you're at the hospital and having meetings from your bed. <laughs> so that would have been before it was normal to have Zoom meetings and work from your bed. Oh, yeah. I was <laughs> just obnoxious. Now my kids are going to school from their beds. <laughs> yeah, I had like a tripod and I set up my lights and everything. And I was doing workshops and stuff. And I had Eric hang a sign on my door that was like, don't come in. I'm recording something. And the nurses would just be like standing outside the door and be like, well, we have to take her vitals. And I'm like, no, you just get out of here. I'm <laughs> doing something right now. Get out of here. I'm working. Yeah. And so I was like oh, calling into meetings. And finally, some of my colleagues were like, can you please stop? Just like, you just focus on doing what you're doing. You know, the world will end if you stop doing your job for a couple months. Like <laughs> yeah. It was keeping me sane. I was like, I can only do so much Sudoku. So you're just going to have to let me like zoom into my meetings. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like this waddling seven month pregnant in my hospital gown, the back flaps open and I'm just like yes. getting out of bed. Like, and there's nurses taking my blood on camera and people are always just looking at the background of my zoom. Like what on earth is happening? I'm just like, it's fine. <laughs> just ignore it. <laughs> and I was just like out of my mind with really high blood pressure half the time. So I don't, I don't remember anything that I said. Like one of my oh workshops, my I just like had no memory of it. And I don't have a lot of memory of a lot of my pregnancy or the first year of Wilder's life. Hence, wow. doing really dumb things like dosing myself with Benadryl. But makes for like a good laugh when Eric will remind me of something I did. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, don't remember <laughs> that one. Time. Bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Like that person was a different person. We can laugh at her. <laughs> Yes, it's a lot easier. Oh my gosh, crazy. Uh, I had a subchorionic hematoma too in the beginning of my first pregnancy. Oh, and no. I had waited until we were 30. And I'd wanted kids since I was 18. And it was just so terrifying. But it, it, I ended up taking progesterone for that. And then it was fine. I don't know. But I always worry if I, if that progest, if like if I overreacted, therefore the doctor gave me progesterone. And if that did something bad. I mean, there's so many things that we can torture ourselves about, you know? Oh, yeah. And I was sure that the stress and anxiety I had being hospitalized would change Wilder. Like he was getting all those stress mm -hmm. hormones zapped right into his nature. brain. Yeah. Yeah. But my doctors kept telling me like, you know, lesser of two evils. And one of the reasons I had to be hospitalized is because no one trusted me to like stay in bed if I was at home. And they had to monitor me all the time. <laughs> and I was like, Aww. you know what? 
good call because I definitely would not have stayed in bed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you were in jail, basically. I was in jail. <laughs> and I remember one of the people who was hospitalized there, the husband and his daughter put a bird feeder outside of her window. So she had something to look at while she was sitting Aww. in bed. And I was like, this is dismal. This is real dire. Yeah, <laughs> when you when that's like the highlight of your day. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. I was like, oh, it's jello day at the cafeteria. Really <laughs> yes, red jello, my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you move on to like really exciting adult diaper post baby. There were so many things that shocked me. And it, it shocks me that I was shocked considering I was trained in OB very thoroughly before I had my babies, right? So I figured, well, I know all of this. Nothing's going to shock me. Several things did. Like the underwear situation was definitely <laughs> shocking to me. I was like, what is this? I And the other thing that was shocking to me, and maybe it wasn't so much for you because you're tiny and you were a little earlier. I don't know. You'll have to tell me. But I still looked pregnant for like six weeks. I was like, what is this body I'm living in? It's so bizarre. <laughs> not no, ready for did. that. Oh, yeah, I did for sure. And okay, that's super meaningful that you say that from your point of view, like having, you know, medically anatomically what's happening and like it's a surprise to you so definitely surprising to me I kind of miss the mesh underwear to be honest um there are good (laughs) things about that yeah but those were handy in retrospect (laughs) yeah yeah. like can I get some please but looking at yourself in the mirror like when you get out of the shower you know eight weeks postpartum or whatever I was like who's that 50 year old woman I know kings are sagging and hanging and it's so bizarre And then the other thing that really surprised me, well, and this isn't very common, but I couldn't pee after I had my kid, either kid. They had to cath me both times. And I'm like, the indignity of having to do this. I thought I was done burying my lower half, you know. (laughs) Can we just leave it alone for one (laughs) moment? No more interventions. Let her be. Yeah, exactly. Let her be. (laughs) No, I think a lot about... I would not have survived my pregnancy had science not intervened on my behalf like mm-hmm. over and over. And so I'm so thankful and I like worship obstetrics and maternal fetal medicine because they totally mm-hmm. saved Wilder and I. But I, I had a premature baby and Joanne, I had third degree tears. And I was like, wow. if mother nature hadn't told me enough times that you are not meant to have children, this was like her <laughs> final memo. She was like, just stop. Just stop. Oh my trying. gosh. Third degree, you poor thing. That's awful. I feel like the recovery from a third degree tear might be worse than a C-section recovery. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't remember it that much. So I benefit of really high blood pressure kind of erased. I like recorded over that section of my life on a VCR. Wow. Just like, but probably it was bad. I don't know. But now I look at this one beautiful child and I'm like, thank you for not having a big head. Had you had a big head, I would just be like bisected into two different people. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was so glad to see that placenta gone. I'm a one and done. And people Mm -hmm. kind of like give me like question that and give me grief about it. But I don't know. There are a lot of great things about having one child. Yeah. I'm imagining that. I have two teenage daughters and they fight a lot. So I I think the (laughs) peace, just just the peace. I mean, I I would never be able to trade one. I mean, I have them both and I love them both. They're fantastic. But there sure is a lot of bickering always. (laughs) I was one of two girls and I can imagine my parents thinking that same thing. So much bickering. I remember my <laughs> my mom wanted a whole bunch of kids, and my dad's a neurosurgeon and super super stressful job. 
But my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she, but she wanted like six, seven, eight kids. Oh. They only ended up with two because my dad was like, I just don't have any more to give. And, and my mom was like, I totally honor that, and I get it. I understand. But while they were in negotiations, my mom said one of the funny things my dad said was, why would we have more kids when the two we have are so awful? Because <laughs> we were teenagers. <laughs> oh, my I'm like, God. Oh, man. I could so relate to that. But <laughs> I mean, oh. they're awful, and they're magical and fabulous too, you know, all rolled into one. <laughs> yes. I was thinking something similar this week when my 20 month old told me I look like Jabba the Hutt. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> He's in a phase where he likes to point at pictures and tell me that they look like people he knows. And uh-huh. his nanny is Princess Leia, by the way. I am Jabba the Hutt. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It reminds me, I had a friend several years ago who had a young child and she had gotten her hair done. And she said, what do you think about my hair, Joey? And he said, your hair looks so good. Now if we could just do something about your face. No. <laughs> Savage. Just go right for the caps. That's so <laughs> and your son is the same age that my first daughter was when she looked right into my eyes and said, I hate you. No. But she didn't know what she was saying. It, she got it from Finding Nemo. <laughs> do you remember that line? Oh, in yes. I was like, okay. oh, honey, let's talk about what that means. <laughs> yeah. Those, I mean, that's I mean, an abstract. Sometimes you will hate me, but you probably don't right now. <laughs> no, not yet. Like, save that for mm-hmm. when you're a little exactly. older. Give it a decade. <laughs> Wilder's very sensitive and really observant. And he has my attitude, though. So he looks like his daddy, and he has my wicked sense of humor. So <laughs> you're sad. I thank myself for that. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and now you're the butt of all of his jokes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be not to have my kids hurt my feelings because it's like, I know they love me. You know what I mean? And they're just be, and I'm, the honesty was just so refreshing. It was hilarious. Exactly. I'm like, Jabba the Hutt, you know, I see it around the eyes. I don't know what that says about <laughs> my sleep deprivation, but I there's see it truth the in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's super ironic because I've seen pictures of you. We haven't met in person, but I'm like, wait, wh- what? <laughs> You're tiny. <laughs> uh, you can thank my incredible photographer, Catherine. God bless. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Uh, okay, tell me what happened one time when you were on a political science panel. Oh, God. Yeah, I was on a panel talking about political campaign communication and I get a little on my soapbox and I kind of been on a roll with these panels in the the few months. And this was like during the 2016 election and nobody stopped me and they didn't mute my microphone. So I just like kind of kept going talking about how there is kind of like an aberration and usual campaign communication. And I called Donald Trump a tangerine nightmare in front of people. (laughs) It's so descriptive. (laughs) And this was in Wyoming not well received was not invited back (laughs) (laughs) you're like wow i can scratch that one off my to-do list sweet (laughs) anyway gonna move to a different state now so (laughs) and little did you know at the time where we would be now it's surreal all right not being invited in any panels (laughs) okay you went to a Christian university in texas and you were taking an evolutionary psychology class which i think is fascinating i'm amazed they had it which but but that's cool what question popped out of your mouth and then rocked your world (laughs) oh yes so I don't know that they actually offered evolutionary psychology but that was what I chose to be like the basis of a lot of my research which was like Mm -hmm. how are we looking at 
how people communicate based on how our brains evolved. Okay. Yes. So that was not something that was offered in my department, but I was like, well, it is now <laughs> because I, I do mean, what like, I want. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I want to do um, communobiology research. So like taking blood samples and figuring out what are people's stress hormones, like how do they change? And I ended up researching sexual health communication, like persuasive sexual health communication. How can we persuade people to adopt healthy sex behaviors based on an evolutionary argument? Because I just think evolutionary theory is a great handbook, like manual for how humans work. And it can explain so much. I had at least one authority figure who called me into his office and asked me to explain some of the intricacies of evolutionary theory just to kind of like test me to see if I would go through with it and was kind of discouraged multiple times from going down that path of research because I also was studying how does evolution play into relationships between gay sons and their dads and so it was like homosexuality evolution that wasn't well received and then I was like, well, you know, I can do one better. I can talk about anal sex and evolutionary psychology. And it wasn't like an FU. It was just like kind of I found my way to that. And they were probably just like, how soon can we get rid of her? She wears a thong <laughs> on the back of her shirt and she asks our students questions about anal sex. Here's your degree. Goodbye. <laughs> and I didn't just ask questions about anal sex, but part of the survey, like I was doing experiments and part of that was like surveying students about their sexual behaviors and yeah. I know that when in my like thesis panel that at least one of the people on my committee was like this is horrendous and <laughs> if you're gonna study sexual behavior you have to have a realistic inclusion of the sex acts I mean I would think but here's me I mean I'm coming from a very scientific and medical and logical Although, you know, yeah. interestingly enough, I am Christian. I do not deny scientific evidence. Yes, they should not be mutually exclusive. Like. Exactly. So I just find it all very fascinating. To me, I'm always surprised when, like, look, I'm just looking at things that exist. You yeah. know, I'm just looking at things that exist and I'm curious about what the basis might be. Why do you get your panties in a rumple? Right. You know? I mean, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. For science, and I teach this in my class at the University of Montana, science research is a path to understanding the truth of things. And for some people, yes. faith is a way to do that. Like they're not, shouldn't be mutually exclusive in my mind. And some people believe that they are, but I really love and admire people who can find a way to meld them like you mm -hmm. Do. Yeah, I'm actually reading a really interesting book right now. It's written by the leader of the Human Genome Project, and doggone it, I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, it's actually really, oh, it's called The Language of God. And it's super fascinating because he doesn't deny scientific evidence either. I think he started out in physics and then he went to medical school and then he got really interested in, in genetics research, which is so up my alley. I love genetics, I love medicine, obviously. And he started out as an atheist and actually is a believer and talks really eloquently about the unnecessary denial of scientific evidence. For me, it only bolsters my faith because I'm like, this is awesome. This is such a good way. Yeah. I'm going to put that on my reading list. Yeah. I'm not all the way through. I'm about halfway through The Language of God. 
Awesome. Okay. <laughs> I want to hear how it goes when you take your child to work with you. Oh, God. You'd think that I would have learned. <laughs> That's like, actually, just put that on my tombstone, Joanne. Um, you'd think that I, I would have learned. learned. <laughs> so I was like, you know, tried in Texas to unsuccessfully blend family planning with work when I was, so I was, you know, an egg donor and I was like showing up to school looking a little bit pregnant and unwed. <laughs> but then fast forward to working at the University of Montana, which is fantastic and have not had a single bad experience with the administration there and love go Grizz. And my department chair, Justin, who I just adore and is like always my champion. He was totally understanding of, I don't have any childcare. I'm going to bring my eight month old to these workshops that I'm leading or to class. And so I'm trying to lecture about marketing in front of a room full of undergraduate or graduate students and Wilder's trying to stick his finger in an outlet. And <laughs> you're like, teaching you you lot and keeping this one safe. This is this is a lot to deal with. <laughs> Too much. Not didn't do either of them well. Not a great mom in that moment. Not a great teacher. Or he would start crying and I would just start shooting milk out of <laughs> every orifice. It just bad. Bad. Don't wear silk when you're nursing. Uh-oh. Oh. That was out of necessity, and I'm super lucky to have found a nanny who helps me most of the time. But you know, Eric works a lot, so it's it's either me or JC or nobody most of the time. But the good thing is that I got like a couple emails or messages on Instagram from students who are in those classes and said, like, I think these messages were exclusively from women who said, I've never seen somebody do their job while taking care of their kid. And that was really cool or meaningful to me. And some of them were moms or I have relationships with a lot of my female students just because I talk about those things in class too. And like, I don't think that our personal lives and our professional lives, like the Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap there. Yep, There's definite harm to both. If you try to pull them apart, they're not going to, you can't, it's like magnets. You can't completely pull them apart. And the more you try, the more energy you waste and the more harm you do to both. I think. Yes. But then, you know, obviously you can't completely overlap them either. It's a balance. For sure. And that's like my why is I work with women business owners so they can make a really stable income so that they don't have to choose either or like be a mom or have a business. And like, of course, it is a delicate balance. And how do we like integrate those two things? Like Justin, my wonderful department chair, he'd asked me to guest lecture in his class and which I love to do. And I'd done it several times before, but this is that particular time I mentioned to you was the first time that I had to come in and lectured with Wilder. And at one point, Justin stood up and interrupted me and said, he's sticking his finger in an outlet. <laughs> and I was like, oh God. You're like, Note to self, bring outlet plugs next time I bring Wilder to work. <laughs> yeah, had not even occurred to me. I think he had just started like crawling and being mobile and still getting used to He's a little bit autonomous and he still likes outlets. Haven't actually found an outlet cover that he can't get out yet, but he's oh almost my two, gosh. So. <laughs> He's way smarter than me, Joanne. Do you, do you ever watch New Girl, that comedy? Yeah. Oh, you gotta, you have to look up on YouTube the scene where Nick is talking to a cop and he starts bearing his soul and telling her all these bad things that he's done. And then it cuts, it cuts to her saying, and why would somebody urinate on an electrical outlet? And he goes, well, I thought it would make lightning. <laughs> the 
just grown man. It's it makes me laugh so hard. Um, I hope that I never get to that with Wilder, but like he's been <laughs> yeah. curious, so it's I'm, possible. I'm just putting it out there as a warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it doesn't make lightning, so you got that going for you. <laughs> Good, excellent. Thank you so much for listening to the Fancy Free Podcast today. Isn't Micah amazing? I just, I could have talked to her all day. She's so funny and has such a unique perspective. She, she's just awesome. Make sure to go to fancyfreepodcast.com slash bonus one three to get all the links that we discussed in today's episode. I'm going to link to the YouTube video of Nick on New Girl talking about how he thought urinating on a light socket would make lightning because it just gives me sheer joy. I will link to Micah's previous episode, episode 81, and I will put a link directly to the sign-up page for the Fancy Free Tribe newsletter so that you can be entered to win a free viewing of Sister of the Groom. Have a wonderful week, and remember, no one is as fancy as they look. (laughs) 